Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Today's a special episode on the crisis in Ukraine. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown Podcast on the Islet Network. Your number one resource for law enforcement training. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, guys and girls. Well, this is a special episode here on the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Obviously, like I prefaced in the intro, we are going to be talking about the current evolving crisis in Ukraine with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we're six days into the conflict and occupation, and um, this was a, a snap decision to to bring a group of experts in to talk about the crisis, to talk about Putin, to talk about Russia, to talk about the motivating factors for Russia stepping into Ukraine. We go back and we talk about the history between Russia and Ukraine, all of the other countries that are involved. Obviously, we're, we talk about um, alliances, we talk about the, the current standing, what's happening operationally on the ground. Uh, we talk about cyber warfare. We talk about timing and sanctions and traditional war fighting versus insurgency war fighting um, and asymmetrical warfare. And so really interesting conversation. And this was just the starting point. And we are going to be bringing these guys back later this week to follow up after there has been some more changes. Obviously, rapidly evolving situation on the ground in Ukraine. And so um, I want to do my best to keep you up to date because I think it's very important that you guys are getting the actual truth, the relevant facts, um, and not just what's being spit out by the media. So hopefully you find this interesting and make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you get up-to-date information when we release new uh, information and episodes on the conflict in Ukraine and all the other uh, law enforcement training and public safety training that we're going to continue to put out week after week. So thanks for joining us here on this episode and uh, let's get into it. Here we go. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode here on the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Today is a special episode um, because we are dealing with a very serious current event, which is the the current uh, Russian occupation of Ukraine at the moment. Um, today, as we record this, is the 28th of February, and so... Um, I've been I've been just uh, lucky enough and, and honored that I have a a group of gentlemen here um, with extensive backgrounds um, in both military and law enforcement operations that are going to share their wisdom with us today on everything about this crisis, from the history to it, to what we can expect from uh, an operational component and, and potentially some predictions later on at the end of this episode. And so. What I'd like to do before we get started uh, and jump into this, I'm just going to go around the horn and let everybody briefly introduce themselves, and um, and then we'll get things underway. So, Steve, why don't you go first, brother? Thanks for that. So, I'm Steve Nash, not the two-time MVP of the M- NBA. Uh, why am I here? Well, uh, back in the day, during the Cold War, actually, one of the coincidental experiences I had in an undergraduate program at Royal Military College was to take uh, some years of uh, Russian and Soviet history And because we were still in the Cold War and I was going to be an infantry officer, I actually took two years of Russian language with the idea that I'd be posted to Germany, right, to uh, have some linguistic skills in and around the Warsaw Pact. Uh, Hello, everybody. Near my man. Um, uh, I'm uh, uh, 25 years of uh, background ranging from uh, military, law enforcement and security between uh, Israel, Canada and the United States. Um, uh, culturally, I'm half Ukrainian, uh, so a little bit of a kind of personal attachment to this uh, situation uh, going on right now. 
Uh, Hans Bathija here, strategy and risk analyst. Uh, done some work in banking, cyber, other things. Uh, was a former board director of the Royal Canadian Military Institute and a director of the NATO Association. Um, like Steve, I'm a bit of a Cold War warrior. Learned Russian uh, way back when, because, you know, certainly the Cold War was on and all of a sudden the Berlin Wall fall, fell. A uh, bit of a background to Ukraine. My wife's a Polish, Ukrainian, Bosnian, Croatian who went through the Balkan Wars. Uh, her, her side of the family comes from Ternopil in the Kingdom of Galicia and Lodomeria, so pre-Ukraine. Um, so we have personal history with the region. And so Adam kindly invited me to uh, join you all today and share my perspective. Gentlemen, uh, good evening. Nick here. I was uh, in the military for 17 years, uh, various functions, led as an officer of uh, the intelligence function and recently transitioned to the private sector where I work in uh, cybersecurity nowadays. So very happy to join you and be with you. Awesome. Well, I, listen, I appreciate all you guys taking the time on this. Um, I know flash to bang was was pretty immediate. I, I basically said, hey, what are you doing tonight? Like, let's make this happen. Um, obviously, it's a it's a rapidly evolving situation in Ukraine right now. And so, you know, we're going to put this out this week and and uh, who knows what's going to happen um, next week. This may be mostly irrelevant. Who knows what's going to happen um, uh, for myself? If, if no one's listened to the podcast before, obviously, my name is Adam Kanakin. Um, I'm uh, the host here for the Tactical Breakdown podcast. I also run the ILET network. Um, and compared to the gentleman that will be speaking today, I am grossly underqualified to share thoughts and experiences in this matter. So you probably won't hear too much of me uh, for the rest of this conversation. So um, just real briefly, I did want to to go over some some key facts. Like I said, today's the 20th of February. Um, it was the 22nd of February, six days ago, that uh, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, announced that he was recognizing independence of the two pro-Russian uh, breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine. And um, and that kind of kicked off the current occupation that we see right now. But of course, and this is what we're going to start this conversation off with, is that was six days ago. This thing has been, this conflict has been brewing for, for many, many years, uh, many generations, in fact, before we even got to this point. And so what I'd like to do um, is perhaps pass it off to uh, to you guys here and, and and let's see where that starting point is and and maybe let's let's bring everybody back and give them a baseline as to what kind of what we can actually be expecting because and we were discussing this offline there's there's significant cultural religious um, uh, ideological components to this that we as a Western culture, potentially don't understand and that's why there's a lot of these things that are happening where we're seeing on on uh, uh media we're seeing whether it's social media or or traditional media um and people are wondering why why would this even be happening um and i think it's because we just we some people just can't understand the actual the the driving and motivating factors behind this in the first place so let's start off there guys um i'll, I'll toss it up and whoever wants to grab the ball and run with it Maybe, maybe I'll go first if I could, and then I can hand over to smarter people. <clears throat> Part of me says, uh, you know, this is a very simple, a simple occurrence in the world. There's an idea of dominance and power and respect, and, and we can think of that individually. And yet those things, because of human-to-human -human interaction, are particularly complex. The idea of uh, one or more people, how they're feeling, how they're thinking, what their beliefs are, what, they, what their history is, and what they believe it to mean 
their culture. And then I think it circles around to the idea of, you know, who who is an individual? Who is Vladimir Putin? He's who am I now? Who am I going to be in the future in the history of, of the next hundred years of what's written down in Russia? And then who are others? What do they mean to me? And, and just before I hand over, I, for me, <clears throat> Russia is a different idea that has been on the edges, like connected to Europe, but not really European. It remains the single largest country in the world. And it has been dominant for a large portion of the world that has been often uh, invisible or overlooked if you are from another trajectory of, of history. So if you're from a tradition like I am from the British Empire, then the Russian Empire doesn't mean very much to you because the, the sun never set on the British Empire. But if you look at the Russian Empire, going back with a similar lineage to Viking invasions, to the princedoms of, of early Rus and, and indeed the princedoms of the kingdom of Kiev, right, which is the capital city of, of Ukraine now. But to me, these things are both close and personal to a few people or a singular person and what they want to do. But like the way each of us is created and who we believe we are and how we're connected to other things, this is also very deep, particularly in an idea of an older Russia, Russia that goes back at least uh, 1300 years, 1400 years perhaps, right to the very basics. And then those mythologies and a cultural set of a type of people which is very broad, you know, the difference of the people who live on the edge of the Ukraine and the difference or with the, the Russians in Vladivostok. And yet they do have some common ideas and common themes and how they think of themselves. Hans, you have a lot to offer on this uh, topic. <laughs> well, I mean, Steve, Steve is absolutely right. The, the you know, just on a, a little back, additional background to that, my father is Indian. He's a partition refugee. In 1947, he fled Sindh. And his community were from Shikarpur. We were the bankers of Central Asia. Throughout the Russian times, we were bankers, and then the bank, Russians kicked us out because we thought we were spies for the British, actually. So we did all the Hundi banking. And General Leslie was one of the few people who understood how important that was to the region, which was to finance the money back and forth in that region. Um, so my family's been involved in this thing for a long time. My mother's Chinese. So she have, there's a Chinese perspective through all this going on as well. As, as you know, Steve noted, the, the Russian Empire stretches to Asia. It's only Peter the Great, really, who, st who said about with the European experiment. <clears throat> Putin actually thought at some point a few years back that he was going to reconnect the European experiment and fully make Russia a European nation once again. And so that was when the G8 was there, and then they agreed to, you know, unite the two Germanys and all these things. But if you go back to, to, to 1648, the Treaty of Westphalia, people are forgetting this Treaty of Westphalia thing, which underlies our current systems of government. And I, I've, I have argued in an article that when the Berlin Wall fell, that was the end of the Treaty of Westphalia. We kind of reached a bif bifurcated treaty. One phone, Moscow, one phone, Washington, Dr. Strangelove, we sorted it all out. It's all good. But then when that came down, old forces were, re, re, were reignited. Whether it's in India, whether it's in China or in Africa, old forces came to play again. And Mother Russia came back to life, roared back to life again through this. So the Peace of Westphalia is something that I think 
needs to be understood, but that's underlying all this. Putin was trying to observe the treaty. The question is, is the West still observing the Treaty of Westphalia? That's really the question. Is Washington able to observe the treaty? Right? And Putin believed he was trying to observe the treaty, but the question was everybody else playing the same game. Right? And he's trying to be the European broker, at the same time trying to be an Asian broker, so he's working with Xi on the other side. Now he's watching Xi do things, and no one's questioning whether China does anything. Xi took Tibet, no one no, no one blinked. Dalai Lama's in exile. We all sit there and say, oh my God, Tibet. But no one really cares. And here are the same things going on here in, in Ukraine. So in 1648, Treaty of Westphalia. And in 1792, another important thing happened in 1792, which is Catherine the Great expands the empire into Poland and Ukraine. And, they, and in that point in time, 50% of the world's jury ends up inside the Russian borders. And Russia didn't know what to do with 50% of the shtetl Jews. The Pales were created at that point in time, which causes a whole bunch of issues, and which comes around with the Kishinev programs in 1903, I think, which is now Moldavia. The Kishinev programs then sets about a whole chain of events, which very few people study these days. It's called World War Zero. And one of the great experts on World War Zero is a guy who actually just passed away, I think, or he's close to it, David von Schimmel. David von Schimmel van Pinnock which was the Russo-Japanese War, 1908-1909, right? That is the basis behind a lot of these things that are going on today that underlines why Putin's making the moves that he's doing. The question for the West is, is there room for this kind of thought? And so far, we're seeing there's no room for this kind of thought. Anyways, that's my sort of my uh, contribution to Steve's uh, opening. That's uh, that's awesome. You know what? I actually, uh, despite the fact that I'm a, a, a panelist here, I got questions for you guys. I'm not that well versed in, you know, going back with the uh, history that far back, right? Beyond uh, high school uh, history classes and what's going on today. Um, I can speak more to the military side, the operational side, but I got I got kind of three questions that um, that interest me that I want to throw uh, I want to throw at you guys as well. So number one, because we had a little bit of a pre-talk before we uh, we came live here. And uh, the question of what's Putin's objective? Why is he doing this? Number one, my question that I have, you know, he has been more than just uh, hypothetically hinting at this intent going back already over 10 years now. So why now? What is it that triggered him now to finally pull the trigger? And then the thing that I think is going to be very interesting to watch, which I think is going to kind of solidify more in the coming days, are what alliances can be expected to be formed here on both sides you mentioned uh which was a surprise to me hans that uh, earlier uh, we were talking that uh india is backing putin on this um i don't know if you guys have a little bit to offer on, on those three points i i'm just gonna jump in real quick because i did just i was doing some research before this so i didn't sound completely stupid when i got on this call um, so I think something very historically, to your point, you said India is backing Russia. Um, obviously, we know China is backing Russia. Um, but I think something super historically significant had just happened, which was that Switzerland got off the fence and is now backing the EU. Which, from from a history perspective, that's that's nuts. Well, Adam, wait, wait, hold on a second. Switzerland is not the Switzerland it used to be, by the way. Well, if you, anybody okay. in banking knows that Switzerland has been taking a pounding over the last 20 years and they've been pounded into submission. So although they're not 
part of the EU, the reality is, you know, they've been brought to heel. But but less submission and of their own accord this time to be in line with the sanction regime that's being put in place by European partners and others. Well, they have no choice, really. <laughs> and I think I think and and uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Brazil just came out and declared neutrality in the whole thing. So Brazil's saying now I'm on the there now uh, I believe there is a there's a five country group including Brazil is it Brazil, China, India, South Africa, and uh, Egypt. The Arab, the Arab the Arab League is backing Russia. Now, okay. backing, backing is a strong word. India is not necessarily backing Russia, by the way. Okay? India and, Ru and Russia have a very historic, ancient relationship, as well as a very strong economic one. Militarily, the two of them are intertwined. Militarily, the Indians don't trust anybody, generally speaking. So they play off one against the other. They just bought the French jets. Just last well, a few weeks ago, they signed a deal with the French, the Raphael jets. Um, they have bought stuff from Sweden before, from Beaufort and so forth. So, but Russia and India are always linked. So India will never turn its back on Russia. No. So as this as this shakes out, then Tanir's question: Do we do we have guesses as to what Putin's end state is on this? Because I think that's people are wondering. Like, well, the the conversation is: it's either you believe he's going to get Ukraine and leave it there. Or he's going to get Ukraine and, and want to do more, and that's that's kind of really where everybody's kind of picking one one of those sides or the other. So where are we at on that? What's your guys' best guess? Well, maybe I'll start again and then and hand over to smarter people. But you know, again, it in, if you want to look at some simple things, think of what the Ukraine means for resourcing. Uh, it's the breadbasket of Europe. Has some of the it has uh, they estimate. 570 years remaining of coal if if this if the russia pulls it out of the ground as fast as they can 570 years of coal uh, large reserves of oil and gas second largest reserves of iron ore second largest reserves of manganese ore in the world uh, fourth in titanium fifth in uranium second in graphite third in mercury uh, and that is just if you look at you know what what can we take from the ground that is there in resourcing? Uh, some of the in industrial aspects uh, have some use as well. But, you know, as Hans was saying earlier, there are two. Part of the discussion is whether the Ukraine belongs to Europe, right? As, as, as a European entity, someone who could be in NATO or be there, or whether they are part of the Russian Federation and the Russian Empire, which they've been on the boundary uh, you know, for many hundreds of years because of where they sit. Uh, again, you know, maybe I'm, I'm too simple in this, but someone like Vladimir Putin, if you think of uh, who in English we might call uh, Ivan the Terrible, that's not his, that wasn't actually his name. Ivan Grozny, uh, Ivan Grozny was more Ivan the Awesome. I, I, Ivan, the man who deserves respect from the entire world. Much like Genghis Khan was Genghis Genghis Khan, the king of king of kings, right? So that idea, simple as it might seem, you're like, well, who would do that? Well, people who believe in the grandeur of themselves and the grandeur of a, of a historic notion of an empire. And, and as Hans uh, rightly noted earlier, you know, Putin comes on the scene 
as a younger man employed in the KGB in the in the Soviet Union as it as it falls. And then as the Chechen wars occur, like on the boundaries where the Mujahideen and other groups, when they went, you know, went into uh, Dagestan and Boris Yeltsin didn't quite know how to deal with it. But uh, they did manage to. And if you think of what happened in the Battle of, of Grozny, right, they the Russians first got a bloody nose or the, the Soviets slash Russians as they transitioned, got a bloody nose. But then they decided to lay waste to the city. In 2003, Grozny was declared by the United Nations as the most destroyed capital city in the history of the world. So he did a Genghis Khan black flag. You have humiliated us and fought us. Now we will eliminate you from the face of the earth. And that was that was of the time of the transition between, you know, an alcohol fueled Boris Yeltsin who played his part and a Vladimir Putin who was just putting his spurs on and getting on, you know, his version of his Cossack mount to to take to take on some different groups around the boundaries who were not respecting, I think, in his mind. And it's not about respecting the Soviet Union because he he oversaw the, the fall of that. Right. He was inside it, but then looked and said, maybe that's not the thing. But this new idea of respecting on the boundaries of the frontier and the empire. And, you know, you can go back, uh, you know, through the, the Russian and the Brits and the great game around Afghanistan. And that's part of the link to India, because in India, they didn't really like the Brits there, but they didn't really want the Russians. But at least they could respect the Russians stopping and looking south as they look north. Right. And again, you go back. There is things in your lifetime, things in your school education, things in your cultural memory. But I think for the for the Russians, especially Russians like Putin, they these things are very real to them and 2022 in their minds and their brains. Interesting. The perspective is interesting. If you go more near term, here you have individual who will be 70 years old this year. Mm-hmm likely as you've just described reflecting on the glory that was in an attempt to restore you know some semblance of of what what could be an empire considered to be an empire with legs but you know putin is up against significant demographic headwinds in russia and you know this this move into ukraine further move into ukraine right we're eight years removed from annexation of crimea almost to the to the week and so now you have uh, Putin willing to put Russia into, you know, prior state status, sharing uh, lists with, with North Korea, they say, potentially for a time at least, in order to unlock some potential future that wasn't otherwise possible given their current boundaries. So I do wonder to what extent it is we can consider a kind of a hangover of the Cold War or the opening gambit of, of a new era where there's an attempt to restore glory, but at a cost that they might not be able to incur. Let me add to that. I, I think restore glory, I think he's already done that. He's a chess player. My son's playing chess. I, t- I play chess with him. I back, I, sh- I introduced the game risk to him, access and allies to my kids. I shared a picture with my friend of mine. He said, oh, you train, you're training them to be Putin. I said, no, I'm trained to be British Canadian the way I am. Steve's laughing because he knows exactly what I'm saying. That's this right. is how guys like Steve and I 
learned to play war games. We yeah. got our friends over. We played Axis and Allies, and hopefully you didn't get Japan. And you let you lasted the longest, but eventually you lost, right? You got bombed. Putin plays chess. He's a chess master. He's a judo guy. He plays a long game. He already recovered Russia. That's yeah. why he launched this attack, because he can. He can take the last gamble as a man at seven years old and say, I can set the stage for the next generation if I do it now. If I don't do it now, the the opportunity to, to create that czarist Russia will be now gone. So, yes, you're right. He's doing that. But it, the glory is already there. He's got $600 billion dollars in reserves. He's already treated like a pariah to Steve's point, you know, like, you know, the, the Russian view of, of Putin or the Mongolians still view Jenkins Khan as a great Khan. Yep. Now, if you look at India, Gandhi's, Gandhi's light is dimmed now and on the way out because he was the Western stooge. And so was Nehru. And so was Jinnah to that matter. Yeah. They were London educated, you know, barristers. But Bose is now resurfaced in India. Bose's statue is now in Delhi. And the West doesn't understand what that means. But Bose actually fought for Hitler. And Bose actually went and fought for Japan, the INA. And the INA now is now in vogue in India after being kept quiet for so many years. So these forces are now at play. And I think Russia is in a position where it's got $600 billion in reserves. It's a debt-free nation. It has fairly, you know, modernized military from its perspective, not from a U.S. over-engineered perspective, but from a Russian perspective, they've got a battle-hardy operational army and kit because they fight alongside the Chinese in the SEO annual military maneuvers, correct? You guys all know that. And every year they get up there and do battle formations. How often do we do that in that scale? We don't. And she and Putin just signed a peace deal between them a few weeks ago. So he figures this is the time to launch. He's going to do it. He's going to add more glory or not. At seven years old, it's all in. That's what he's saying. I'm all in for Mother Russia. Either I go down in the annals of great history or it's over anyways because the West will just keep on coming. Yeah. Right to my point about the Westphalian peace, the West will just keep on coming. So, and, and, I'm sorry, go ahead, Steve. I was going to say, I think you're right, Hans, in, in that perspective. And Nick mentioned it as well. Putin is certainly aware that he's nearing time past point. And he's likely at a time in his political power that, you know, he has to do something or not. But to, to not do anything would be to hand to his... Uh, his rivals and those who could back him or others to say, well, he's he's done. He's got nothing left. Um, and that idea of, you know, this idea of the, again, to me, the Russian Empire, if you think, if you go back to the Napoleonic Wars and you read, you know, War and Peace and Tolstoy, the great book, it was about, it was the Russians who broke the back of Napoleon's armies. And although it took time to get to Waterloo, et cetera, it was the Russian armies that broke their back. And they broke their back both winning and losing battles. They had Moscow taken and the Russians did not care because they said, if you want to spend the winter in empty houses in Moscow, you can because you will freeze to death and that next morning we will be back. And, and I think part of that, the resurgence that Russia 
is in now with Putin is is kind of that thing. You've pushed us and you've shrunk us. And now it is now the next morning and we will push you back. And from a Western perspective, a North American perspective, we might think that it's unreasonable for someone to say, well, uh, you are actually trying to push NATO on my boundaries. You're trying to invite my neighbor, the Ukraine, who I have a funny relationship. We are we are both Slavs. We are speak similar languages. We have 14, 12 or 1400 years of history together. And now you want them to be with you. But I say they're with us. And, and even in the, you know, since 2014, the, the, the int- entrance of Russian nationals and Russian supporters in, that's part of that. Let's, let's prove who wants to be part of what. And he's, I think he's, I might not like him, but he's been pretty smart about it. And even in retaking the Crimea, well, the Crimea was given to the Ukraine in 1954 by Nikita Khrushchev, largely because at the end of the Second World War, it was in a retrograde orbit of becoming a burden on the state. But in 2014, it's no longer a burden on the state. Uh, it is a, a piece of valuable terrain with uh, water, you know, reasonable water frontage, so to speak. And it also represents, it also represents to the British Empire and the Western coalition, you know, spawn of the British Empire, you know, the Crimean War means something to the Russians. And the Crimea Peninsula and the and the hundreds of thousands of folks that died there on both sides. And in the in the British Empire, thinking of the charge of, of the Light Brigade, right? That's that's a historic, you know, a mythological piece of war fighting to 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 many sides. And and again, I go back, you know, is it as simple as someone wants dominance and power and respect? But for any single human being, that's not simple, it's complex. And then when you start to represent the largest country in the world, which is no longer necessarily considered a first world power, but had for for many years on multiple occasions been the military force of the world, right? Not just in the Cold War, but in previous eras, the singular military force to be dealt with and the empire to be dealt with. So I want to not necessarily sort of controversial topic on top of that, but I mean, I might as well, because we're going to get there anyway. Um, You brought up the point of timing. So obviously timing as far as, as Putin's age, political standing and everything happening there. But one of the biggest talking points, especially in the United States is everybody is of the belief that depending on what side of the aisle you're on, it's either um, it's Biden's fault or it's Trump's fault, and it's like everybody in the U.S. believes that it's whatever they did caused this. And I think, from from listening to you guys talk, it seems to me like the, the way the timing of this worked, that the deck was stacked, Putin has been stacking this deck for a while, and and whoever, the, whoever was in charge of the United, whoever had the hand on the wheel when this thing kicked off, it, it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things because uh, so many other pieces had to be in place for this. And so I'd love to get your guys, am I right in saying that? In that we maybe kind of have to be a little less full of ourselves and thinking that like, and, and I'm going to just, I'm not American, but we'll say like North America, right? That we directly influenced the this this conflict when I think we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves in that this is this is something that's happening regardless of whether or not the U.S. or Canada was involved. 
I can relate a personal story behind this because, you know, we we think in 24 hour sound bites nowadays. Today's generations in schools don't learn history. No one talks about collective security anymore, right, Steve? Oh, yeah. Nope. When was the last time you heard the word collective security? Complex. You and I learned co collective security and how it all works and all these things. And um, that's all being disbanded and thrown to the garbage can. Um, Putin's also fighting against that uh, to some degree. Um, but in 2007, I was invited on behalf of the RCMI Defense Studies Committee to go over to Poland to speak at the Economic uh, Forum in Konica. So, I, and I was speaking on, on the EU army and NATO and things like that. But it was an interesting time, 2007. Because in 2007, people forgot the Americans were putting in the missile shield in Poland and Czech. And I was in the room and there was a, a general in one of the panels. And and then there was a, a, an American undersecretary of state was there and stuff like that. And I forget the exact conversation, but the way it went, but somebody said to the Russian general about, uh, how can you say that, sir? You know about something he just started laughing at them so they started laughing at me how can i say that of course i can say that did you know i'm russia and you guys are putting your missiles up against our up against us in poland and czech and we've told you don't do that but you're going to do it anyways and the americans you know they just don't understand they think the americans feel it's their right to put missiles where they feel like and the americans and the russians will just have to put up with it but that was 2007 so that wasn't that long ago yeah, Adam, to your, to your question, you know, it's a, it's a confluence of factors, absolutely. But certainly one of them from Russia's perspective is how emboldened uh, NATO is, the support it's getting, and the solicitation of, of new members. That That is, you know, from the Russia's, Russians' view, looking to the West, that is what they're going to see. And take into account exactly what, what Hans has said, the, the, the placement of strategic systems, regardless of the uh, justification for them, whether it's to counter other countries, right? The approximation makes it a factor in the eyes of the Russians. But in addition to that, you know, the idea they bolstered their reserves in order to have a hedge against things like we've seen the sanctions be put in place. The time is taken to do that, to position their troops. Uh, and there's, you know, so certainly we can have a debate about how ready uh, the forces were to actually uh, do an incursion and, and undertake this operation, because there's lots of reporting coming out that maybe, you know, they weren't exactly as prepared as they could have been. But it, it's hard to pin it down, certainly on a, an administration, as you laid out. Um, and the timing is dictated by both external and internal factors. And, and I think to go back to point, uh, you know, Hans's notion of playing risk, you know, people who have power, including people like Vladimir Putin, play the game. And when you when you are ending your team and you shuffle some some brigades or some whatever's here, and if you think of the, the change in the the Cold War status when, you know, the Brits had a core in in. Uh, in Germany and the Americans had the seventh core and they had these cores. Well, now as they play risk, they're reshuffling and they're watching for what are my new opportunities? Cause their turn has ended. What are my new opportunities? And one of the most fascinating things to me uh, over the years watching and, you know, considering Russian history and watching them, they still have domestic issues, 
but not the way we have in the West. Like one person sprains their ankle or feels bad in, in Canada and we can shut down. We just spent three weeks trying to figure out how to get a few hundred truckers honking their horns out of the national capital and brought in just under 5,000 police officers to do it. If nothing else, the, the methodologies that Russia has garnered in their ways, it's sim relatively in their own unique way, but similar to China, how you take care of things is not to fuss and wring your hands. But once you get serious, you take certain things on and you don't have to go full Stalin, which is, you know, relatively serious. And if you haven't watched the death of Stalin, it's a pretty funny, dark comedy, uh, right? In, in, but it's a way of thinking. And, and in the West, we have a distraction of, well, I'm very serious about this, but I'm quite busy this afternoon. And then I was thinking about myself individually and domestic issues eat up an incredible amount of time. And in certain nations and in certain uh, entities and cultures like Russia, you know, domestic issues don't eat up nearly as much time uh, to, to do that. And, you know, even the way they create armies and create militaries and why people are there and how they live the rest of their lives, right? And, and happiness. I was one of my students I'm teaching right now is a Russian uh, who's studying in Canada now, but she was talking about one of the shocks she came to Canada was how much people smiled all the time when you met them on the street. She said, that's not what happens in Russia. Like you live a different life and you, you don't have a happy smile. You have a barely content, got through another day, you know, time for some more potatoes, you know, maybe some turnip and some vodka. Like it's a different, and that's, and that's, you know, around Moscow. Cause, cause I think part of the equation is the notion, the notion of a country in Moscow, the, you know, the power base around or of Russia, the power base around Moscow is different than the power base along the Trans-Siberian Railway when it's actually running or in Vladivostok. So it, it's, there's many more, like if you think of playing risk, when you got Irkutsk and you got Yakutsk, like you had, and you had whatever, you had to play in a different way because that was still part of your your empire, but it was far away. Not, not a, a tightly bound domestic focused sort of idea like we might have in Canada in the 21st century or in Europe where the European Union is, you know, is mainly for itself. Uh, and then everyone in there, as in NATO, I don't believe that NATO will actually fight if one of the NATO country gets attacked because we haven't really proven it before. And since, you know, in the last 20 years, all NATO entities have merely cut their ability to fight. The ACE Rapid Reaction Corps can no longer leverage 80,000 or 90,000 troops. Now they're talking about the ACE Rapid Reaction Corps and the, uh, what was the, the high readiness, the Sherbrig, right? The super high readiness brigade. Well, it's not super high ready and the ACE Rapid Reaction Corps isn't rapid. So if you're and playing- not if, And not proven. <laughs> no, and, and, and you have 15 national commands which will unravel just about anything which NATO proved in Afghanistan in a place it should not have been. And again, Russia watched and they're, their, their internal Soviet monetary back was broken in Afghanistan, right, in, in, in many ways. But, 
that's not what Putin does. He's been in and out of Syria since 2015, and he doesn't care who wins. But he's gained influence. He's he's trialed all kinds of things. Well, I'll try that. Let's try some of that. Let's try those missiles. How about we get some of those planes? Right? He, he's been test driving. But without the commitment that the Americans had in Afghanistan and Iraq. Right? Because they were bedded in and they they almost bankrupted themselves in those places. But that's not... I don't think that's what he's doing. Even at this time, he's not willing to bankrupt everything. I think I might not like him, but I think he's smarter than that. I think I think he grossly underestimated his moves and seeing that from everything that's going on, right? So he hedged, he knew the economy would be shut down right away. And sure, China has a way to help him circumvent as they do the, uh, the SWIFT system. But he hedged all of Russia's gold against the economy to ride that. He thought he'd be taking Kiev within 48 hours of, of deployment, not going anywhere near that. Um, and I think that he also very grossly underestimated the actual uh, allegiance of the Russian people, given that, you know, the majority of them view the Ukrainians as their own brothers and sisters. And you have a tremendous, and I mean, it's right from the field over there, overwhelming amount of soldiers. They were deployed under the notion that it's a, a large-scale military exercise. And when they started breaching the border and gave orders to start shelling civilian areas, they said, oh, they jumped out of their tanks and started walking back to Russia. <clears throat> and so um, I think that the problem that we have here, though, is that I think his motives that we spoke a little bit to, you know, can be uh, divided up into various uh, topics here from the fact that, yeah, if he takes over Ukraine, he's in a good uh, resource rich, uh, uh, position right now, but there's a lot of ego. This guy thinks he's a God and that is a very dangerous trait to be fighting with. Cause he's not going to back down. I don't see that happening. Um, and that's the problem. And the resolve of the, of the, of the Ukrainians, I mean, they were, you know, in the days of world war II, uh, uh, they were the strongest part of the entire union over there. They were the strongest fighters. And you have now an influx of all of the uh, foreign fighters that are uh, coming in there. He's got a lot of resources, unconventional resources that are flooding in there to uh, uh, to go fight this uh, this attempted uh, takeover. And so I think we're at the point where I believe that uh, there was an uh, from what I heard, there was an order that he gave uh, two or three days ago that by Monday, Kiev was to be taken and he's nowhere near there. Um, and so the question begs here is how far is this guy going to go right that's the uh that's the uh, the scary part with uh, uh with what's going on right now so as a, as, a, as a as a risk as a risk guy oh, and watching soviet style operational tactics he's been playing this game a long 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 like steve says he tries things he's tried it many times he's operational unlike most of the people fighting He's quite operational. I do believe he sent his C team in there. He took a bunch of retreads. He threw them in there. They got in there to poke around, get shot, get killed, you know, bait, shall we say. Get everybody to organize in, in Kiev. I don't think his intention was truly to take Kiev right off the bat. I think his intention was to go down the coast, seal off the coast, have his ships take it over, supply, you know, starve Kiev eventually. That would be the Soviet way of doing things. Long ground game, grind out Kiev. You know, not the American style, which is Shokhanov or German style Blitzkrieg, go in there, 
Sure. He'll say he's going to do that. He'll float misinformation out there. He'll test the waters. But his B team and C team are still held back across the border still. And people know that. His, his, his top guys are not inside Ukraine. His top equipment was probably equipment he can lose in the beginning. But he's now unleashing the rest of his arsenal as we speak, right? Bunker buster bombs, all this kind of stuff. He's going to start to psychologically, we're all expecting this war to end in 48 hours, one week. That's not how the Russians work. How long did they grind out in Syria for, right? They can grind. The, the one thing with the Russians are they can grind. And he can wait. He does not want to exact huge civilian death toll on Ukraine. Why? Because if he does end up taking Kiev, <coughs> he'll have to govern Ukraine. So he also has a diplomatic role here as well. He's not here trying to wipe out Ukrainian people, right? Because he still believes he's a spiritual man in all this stuff. And he's trying to unite the Slavic Russian peoples of the area. So he's playing a, a, you know, a very much game down the middle here on all fronts. So where this goes, I don't think we ever, any of us really know, but it is a typical Soviet-style tactic that he's deploying. So, Nick, and, and Nick, I know I think you're going to jump in here real quick. I just want to pose a just a thought to that. Um, this is it's so interesting because we've gone from what the what the West has understood as as we've been fighting an insurgency warfare for the last twenty years, and this is the first real shift back to traditional warfare that we've seen. Um, and and everything that we know says key objectives control communications, control resupply, all of these things that we assume is what they're going to do. But like, I look at, you know, like you, you bring up the chess model. I always say this thing of like 4d chess. It's like, we're trying to play on a chessboard. He's got like a 3d version of it and he's moving pieces that we don't even see. Now that's being me being just, you know, um, hyperbolic on that. But the, the idea is to, to your point, Hans, I think that there's there's components to this this type of warfare that he's like he's been like Steve said he's been trialing and practicing this stuff and he's he's I think he's a couple moves ahead of where we think he actually is and you know Sun there's a old, the Sun Tzu has that quote right when you are strong appear weak right like that's that's true and it doesn't matter what conflict you're talking about and. Like you had said, he may be feigning the fact that, oh yeah, I'm getting hung up, but he just may be testing testing boundaries, right? You know, touching fences, seeing what's going off and not. So um it's very interesting to your point, but that was the first thing that jumped into my head when when all of this kind of started. So anyway, sorry, Nick, go ahead. No, not at all, Adam. Yeah, just you know, Hans talked about the grind. It absolutely will be a grind. And it'll devolve very quickly from a state confrontation to asymmetric warfare, you know, hybrid warfare against what is a very mobilized population. I think you can see Russia put forward more capable troops, but what we haven't seen ha have much effect up until now is is Russian info war capabilities. They haven't been able to sort of shape, at least as far as I can tell, how the population perceives them and what they're doing in terms of where they're going. That is what Russia has, has sort of invested a significant amount in, and yet it does not seem to be doing them any favors in this situation. So they're gonna, they are gonna face a grind, and that's gonna exact uh, you know, quite a toll on their forces, and, and they're gonna you know, have to withstand the other pressures they face from the international community in that time. The longer it goes on, the more painful it, it will be. 
So I am curious when the kind of the the information operations is going to catch up with what they're doing kinetically, because I haven't seen it. I think it's really interesting as we talk through this, this idea of, you know, as someone who was initially trained in the Cold War and then in 2000 and 2003, I started teaching at the Army Command and Staff College. And with the gap from the fall of the Berlin Wall to 2003, we were still essentially teaching Grenovian. We're going to face the Grenovians, who was the Soviet Union. So I was like, how could Canada or the West not miss out that the Berlin Wall had come down and something had changed? And then we did transition, but then we transitioned so quickly to non-conventional warfare. We don't need tanks. We don't need different things. But but part of it, and again, to me, it's it's more of a, like, the way China fights wars, they, they have lots of time. They have lots of time. And and they literally have numbers that can eventually, even if they just walk forward with a, a spoon in front of them, they could just eventually walk over you. So this idea of the time frame, I think, is really interesting with Putin. But the West is has ADHD, and why didn't you capture it yesterday? And I don't, I don't think he really cares. I think he understands... Uh, better than any of us da, does. When you think of think of the last thirty uh, people in charge of the Soviet Union or Russia, I I think we might say that hey, you know Gorbachev or whoever it is when they when they retired they went to the DACA and they had this great life. I don't know if that actually happens or not. I don't think Russia, like China and other countries, has an easy an easy handover for the next guy. But I think Vladimir Putin knows better than anyone else, like what is the potential to happen. So one of the one of the quick ends in my mind is not the taking of Kiev and the capitulation or peace talks. It is someone inside close to him or someone paid sums of money who says, well, that's it. It's over. Right. Because the the most dangerous attacks come from inside, not outside. And, and the West is pretty slow moving. The Americans have uh, reduced their military by about 70% since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Europe is claims that they're united, but they don't really want to fight. And no one in Europe will commit to taking the lead of responsibility and paying for the war in gold and lives. They, they won't. The United Kingdom is isolated. And, you know, they've watched their military, especially their Navy, go from, you know, the the britannia who ruled the waves to people that you know a navy that can be ignored and you know this it, it was interesting as you were talking about some of the internal riding and other things he wasn't expecting i wonder if that's to him is a proof of the europeanization of both the ukraine and his russia right that in a way that proves his point you're protesting mother russia like you don't get it you think you're them one they don't want you and, and we're not them. But, I, you know, as I think forward, the other one, to, to, to Hans, your point on, you know, the Soviet way of war, which was, uh, you know, 180 to the Western way of war is we, we reinforce failure. The Soviet grand strategy was never that. If your force goes in and is losing, good, you deserve to die. We will rip all of your tanks and your artillery and we will give it to the successful front and create the deep penetration. Whereas the West, the Western way is to fight so that no, nowhere it fails. That's why you can't have a massive success because you're preventing failure everywhere. 
Um, and I'm and I'm not sure where this goes to, right? Because you, and again, back to my initial point, it's both a simple, small thing. One or few people have an inordinate amount of influence and can control things to a certain point. And at the same time, there are now trillions of dollars and money can't buy you love, but it can buy you certain things. And there are billions of people now involved in this. Uh, and, you know, it's a pretty complex risk game now because you're not even sure what the dice are being rolled and whose turn it is because it's all simultaneous. And as you were mentioning, Nick, some of it is is fake news or is the fake news so fake that it's good news? And there, where is where is the actual news? Because, you know, I try and watch like 10, 10 different news stations or whatever. None of it has real news. It has footage from three years ago. It has, you know, footage that I've already seen a few weeks ago. It has people reporting that aren't even in the country. It has people reporting, pretending they're somewhere really serious, but then in the background, like some old guy's walking his dog. I'm like, I don't think that you're in a serious area because no one walks their dog in a serious area. And then they had the Ukrainian army with all their TikTok, TikTok dances. I'm like, wow, this is this is a bizarre. It's a bizarre world of information, right? Yeah, well, we're living in the modern era of fake news. This is what news is all about these days. I mean, it's uh, utterly pointless. Well, no, but to be honest, though, if you talk about fake news, you can go back to Rudolf Hearst. And if you ever watch Citizen Kane, yeah. fake news has been around a long time. It was used to justify the American takeover of Cuba. Vietnam so War. <laughs> Well, that's, oh yeah, that, that 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 interesting moment called the Vietnam War, and I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Yeah. I mean, most millennials have never seen, you know, Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Right. They don't understand that movie. They can't. They can't possibly understand Agent Orange, and napalm, and the secret wars in Laos and Cambodia. Well, but right? but even I I think I'd go further. Is uh, you know because I do lots of work in use of force. And, and in violence, right? Many people would say violence is never the answer. That is untrue. Violence is usually not the answer. And every once in a while, it is the only answer. And that is where someone like Putin has said, right, you all believe in this? Watch this. I'm going to do actual violence. And the only thing that will stop that is actual, committed, real-time, like you mean it, violence, which we have not done in the West for a long time. Now, let's switch gears just a slight second here speaking of violence and using violence to achieve a means you know way back in october it was reported the canadian army was training the azov battalion how true is that i'm gonna put that as a question i don't know it's a very sticky question because underpinning this whole thing too is when i talked about it earlier how putin has shook hands with the with the communists yep that's a really well, that was a really big thing people don't realize how important it was for putin to shake hands with the communists and for the communists to be re-accepted into mother russia and yep. not being thrown out or killed and putin said no 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 we fought the war together we yep. fought with the allies to get rid of the nazis that is a really big part of the russian story the Battle of Kursk and all these things is well, really part of their mythology, right, Steve? Yeah. Well, 
Well, no, but you look at the Great Patriotic War. Mm-hmm. Remember, the like the Russians, when you read Russian history in Russian, they don't talk about World War II. It's nothing to them. It's the Great Patriotic War. When, when the Allies on D-Day landed six divisions, we had been fighting 320 divisions for three years. They thought of Normandy as a raid. It was like mm-hmm. a patrol. Like, and hurry up because we are bleeding. You know, when they captured Paulus's army, they captured more than a million German soldiers that could still fight. They're like, that's a strategic way of, of warfare, right? Not... Right. So even part of there, they're like, well, when has the West come to our aid? And we have saved them a number of times. And, you know, history always has interesting perspectives that are linked to your culture and beliefs. But the the Russians and the Soviets don't believe they owe the West anything. And in, in fact, they look at it the other way around. The Orthodox Church as the seat that saved Christianity when the Dark Ages were everywhere except in and around Moscow, right? And 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 that type of of continuity of ideas. The real challenge to the nearest point, like what comes next? You were asking all the questions, what comes next? Today, Zelensky he signed a you know request to join the European Union. Yeah. See Steve shaking his head, right? You see, this is a this is a ticking time bomb. Ooh. Well, because that's the that's the only thing that will truly set him off and say because because you're not well, you're not giving him some ground to say split Ukraine, Russian Ukraine, and European Ukraine. But let, but let let's just set that aside for a second that that you're you know Putin gets upset. Let's just say that European Union now has to actually entertain the idea and integrate Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the Ukraine? One of the most corrupt countries in Europe. Actually, yeah. there's sex trafficking, other things that goes on through Europe. It's not a, it's not a clean country, by any nope. stretch. That part of the world is not clean, by any stretch, right? There's work to be done there, a lot of work, right? To integrate Ukraine into the European Union could, in fact, in fact break the European Union, because once the once the British left, there's a significant revenue hole inside the Union at the mo- at this point in time. Yeah. So the Union is scratching their head now, saying, oh. You know we're we're backing Ukraine, but to what extent? And then this this has Putin going. Let's see how this works out for you. Yeah. If it happens, you know, on the topic of integrating corrupt countries, there's lots of precedent for the EU. It's not the first time, and they have programs and they have phases and milestones they put countries through to make sure they achieve uh, the benchmarks required, you know, for membership. But it's interesting. I think this doesn't end without some kind of concession. And perhaps the notion of, you know, signing up to the EU is something something that can be undone if only to satisfy Russia and Putin's uh, desires. Yeah. Well, I think it might even go farther than that. I think this doesn't end without a, like, a certain level of change in what we think of Europe and Russia and a balance in that part of the world. And that's, in a way, that's why China... China is kind of watching because they're like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what happens here, especially if the European Union and the Americans get engaged in any way militarily, because then China could either say, well, they will fight once in a while or they're fighting there. And certainly the Americans no longer have the volume of forces to fight two major conflicts. And the Russians knew what Napoleon should have known, never fight a land battle 
in Russia, right, in Asia. Um, you know, so you have all these things coming together and then you have to think, well, who's in the most hurry? Is it Putin who's in a hurry because he's 70? Is it Biden who's in a hurry because he's, you know, coming up for the next stage of elections? Is it the European Union that's in a hurry because they're at a change state and they're not they're They've been kind of wandering NATO. NATO hasn't really had a, had a meaning, but went to Afghanistan when they, I think they shouldn't have, it wasn't there a fight. And now there's something on their doorstep and they're, they're wittering, wringing their hands and hoping, hoping that, uh, you know, Ukraine doesn't somehow get a fast pass to being in NATO because then they might have to do something. So. I want to take I want to take this opportunity here, and, and I think this is a good time to shift the conversation into a little bit more of the the, the tactical strategic component of this. So I'm going to bring this map up just so everybody can see it. Um, now, obviously, if you're listening to this, you can't see this map. I'll I'll link to it, but essentially, it's just um, it's the up kind of up to date map on the territories that Russia has controlled since uh, since the invasion of Ukraine and and things like that. And what I wanted to just maybe touch on with you guys real quickly um is let's let's tabletop this for a second and and everybody can kind of put their two cents in um on what you think logically is the next step like where do you think looking at this map and and um you know uh hands you and i had spoken offline earlier um and you had talked about um a potential opportunity for russia to control the entire southern border um and access to the black sea um moving up through and, and reconnecting with uh, Tanzastria um, uh, kind of on that, uh, that South Southwestern uh, border there. So where, um, where do you guys think looking at this map, what do you think is the, the, the next logical steps? Do you think he's going after the whole thing or do you think he's going to be trying to, to take a chunk of this thing and, and control that one piece at a time? There's, there's lots of room for maneuver here from Belarus to just that, you know, Ukraine's uh, eastern flank with Russia up against the Urals. There, there's room to maneuver throughout the entire operational theater for Russia. So, I, you know, once they have the momentum, why stop? Why stop when they can start from the north and go all the way to the Black Sea? Um, you know, there really isn't anything else barring uh, intervention of some kind to kind of dissuade them from doing so. I'll also note that the Western Ukraine tends to be Roman Catholic and the Eastern Ukraine tends to be more Orthodox. So there is room for negotiation where you can, where Putin may say, I will split Ukraine in half. So don't, you know, he, he's a horse trader kind of guy. He, he will be practical as a chess player. I mean, Ukraine certainly doesn't want that and Europe doesn't want that in the West. We don't want that, but that may be something that, Putin actually pushes for. He's not looking for scorched earth here, right? That's not his goal. Well, I think at the same time, part of it is you don't know, you know, if we were playing some game, you could understand what the win was, right? If we're playing chess or checkers or risk, you can understand what the win is and we agree to it. But in these type of cases, you're not sure. You're not sure what the win is and more importantly, what, what a loss is for you. Mm-hmm. Right? Is it, is it is it clipping the edges to some form of historic boundaries allows him to declare we're reunifying you know lands that were ours you know similar to what he did in crimea crimea is you know in his mind 
even on the you know the west in uh transnistra like what is we don't know what is in his mind for where where the check mark is and where the x's are for his you know both success criteria failure criteria and abort criteria awesome that's it's so interesting and i guess that kind of takes us into now a, a conversation of so obviously it was interesting too that um you know belarus um basically said like we're you know we're with russia which basically opened up that entire northern border um which i mean from a defensive standing for ukraine that sucks <laughs> that's that's a whole another big area for them to to kind of watch out for um so one thing we haven't talked about yet and i know there's a few guys on here who are probably uh, chomping at the bit to talk about this. I want to talk a bit about the cyber warfare component of this that's been brought up um, with this with this conflict. Um, obviously, we've seen there's been some posts now that have gone out internationally from um, various members of Anonymous, um, whatever Anonymous is, it's just an anonymous person, um, threatening cyber attacks. Um, but also, there's been reports of Russia initiating cyber attacks themselves um and 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 vice versa and so um i'm gonna pass this off to the to you guys here who know a lot more about this than that's that's all of my knowledge and information on this topic so i'll hand it off to you guys cyber attacks are a key component of russian information warfare so certainly they've been painting identifying targets for many many months uh planting malware infiltrating systems so that they can have you know basically a room room to maneuver in in, in that plane and have an effect when the time is right. I, I suspect they're withholding, you know, quite a bit of what they could be doing as far as uh, disabling systems, disabling data. We did see at the outset of the conflict, uh, of this phase of the conflict, uh, absolutely, you know, some maneuver in, in cyberspace to disrupt uh, government operations, the ability to mobilize uh, troops and, and communicate with uh, the population. And you're absolutely right. So Russia has also now made its target itself a target of cyber attacks. And so that, that would also put them on a bit of a back foot uh, at home to watch their own systems. It's, it's a huge, uh, it can be a huge dynamic in this entire conflict. Um, and, and we'll sort of see how it, how it relates directly to Russia's objectives as far as where they go in, in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, as a cyber technology guy myself, among other things, I'm not as excited about the cyber stuff as some of my cyber colleagues tend to be. I think this is pretty well a conventional warfare for the most part. Um, a lot of the systems will be, you know, not exactly part of the Internet. It'll be carved off. You know, they know what they're doing. They've got a lot of smart cyber engineers themselves in Russia. And so... Uh, defensively, I think they'd be prepared for that at, at a military level. Certainly, uh, they're not as advanced technology-wise as we, as we would be in the West. We are far more vulnerable in the West than, than they would be. But I think far more interesting when you talk about the cyber world, and Engineer was talking about uh, the ramifications of all this, is the Western Internet, because it is a U.S. Internet, Right. At the end of the day, the root servers are still controlled very much by the by the U.S. and it was set up that way. Um, certainly, we you know um, under ICANN things have been somewhat liberalized, um, but the Chinese have set about in the IP world creating their own splinter net. Russia has also been doing the same thing. 
When you have payment systems, we have WeChat. No one talks about WeChat. So even within our own cyber world, you have WeChat as a payment system bypassing currency controls as we speak, as we speak in Canada and the US and beyond. The Russians and Chinese are playing 4D with payment systems. And this will continue on and on and on. Um, and underlying this is the US dollar as a reserve currency. And this is something that most people don't talk about these days is how long can the US dollar be a reserve currency with oil backing the US dollar? Because part of the history here, Adam, is I don't know if we talked about that, which is the, I think we did a little bit, which is that oil in 71 was used to back the dollar and, and gold was removed under Nixon. And the US nuclear umbrella would cover both Israel and the Saudis. The Kingdom of Saud and Israel became friends, reluctant friends, underneath US auspices. The Chinese are you know, working to remove that, right? They're the only country in the world that has a dual currency, one internal and one external, and most people don't realize that. China is waiting its time. They're watching what Russia's doing. They've got separate systems that they're creating, so they don't have to rely on the US. They are creating their blue water fleet as we speak. And so and that blue water fleet is active and operational and sailing the China seas. That'll be a big problem for everybody. So the Chinese is using this as a whole backdrop to what they intend to do in the long run. And this is not talked about very much. In fact, Tucker, Tucker Carlson, of all people, actually touched upon this in a broadcast the other day. I shared it with some of my friends. They're like, oh, my God, I don't, I don't usually watch Tucker Carlson. But that was a really important discussion. So what, I, what I'd like to do here, gents, is, um, you know, I think this is going to take us to I can feel it. This is going to take us down a rabbit hole talking about, you know, the the current state of world economy, obviously the the monetary systems, SWIFT, sanctions, all of that stuff. So, um, and I think that's going to play in the next 48 hours. I really think that's going to shift a lot anyways. So what I'd like to do is, is maybe if you guys are willing, let's, um, let's run this back in a few days and, um, and, uh, and maybe bring this back and, and have a follow-up conversation once we get a little bit more information on what's happening with that component and um and let's have another follow-up to this conversation Are you guys down for that yeah of course adam sounds great awesome yeah, yeah so um guys what we'll do is we'll leave it there what we'll do is i'll i'll tee up with you guys we'll have you back and then we'll put another one of these together in uh, in a few days here so uh thank you guys everybody for taking the time and joining us here on this episode of the podcast and uh stay tuned for more updates we'll see you soon Join the Islet Network now. Go to Islet.network. That's I-L-E-T dot network. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.